Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this episode 34 of the show about the show. I have a very, very cool and unique guest on today. I have Ken Mars. He is an author and a documentarian. He has a website dedicated to the history of baseball in the city of Baltimore, specifically from 1858 to 1953. We're going to talk about about many, many different things. We're going to talk about his book, Being an Author, his, we are going to talk about his documentaries, and we are also going to talk about his artistry as well as being a member of the Saber Babe Ruth chapter. So it should be a fun half an hour, and without any further ado, I am pleased and honored to bring on Ken Mars. How are you doing, Ken? I'm good, Devlin. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com, which is kind of the web, which is your website. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about why you decided to do the history of the city of Baltimore. Uh, well, I live in the area. I have since the early '80s, and when I moved here, uh, one of the first things I learned about the Orioles is that the old American League Orioles in 1902 eventually became the New York Yankees. And I just thought that was utterly preposterous and couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, nice. you know, and nice. so it really just, you know, like I, I moved into an area that had a lot of mystery to it. And, um, certainly, um, you know, and I'd always kind of read uh, baseball books, but, you know, when you're a kid, usually it's that sort of, you know, scholastic books and Grosset and Dunlap kind of things that you find in the library. But still, yeah. you know, like it, um, after the the Ken Burns documentary came out, uh, uh, a lot of really great baseball books came out, like in the in the late 80s and early 90s, but they still didn't answer my questions. So it just sort of became this thing that stuck in the back of my mind that I didn't really know the answers that I really wanted. And it wasn't really until the Internet really started to really blossom and uh, newspaper archives really took off that I could actually do something about it and find out what these things were. And it just, you know, it got a little out of control, and now there's a book and a documentary. And a lot of people, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think casual baseball fans, certainly fans who haven't seen Ken Burton's documentaries, know that baseball predates the U.S. Civil War by, you know, 20 years or so. Can you kind of talk yeah, about those take, early yeah. years in baseball? Yeah. Sure, yeah. That that was one thing that constantly surprised me. Um, I, I, you know, it's... Uh, 
the fact that it's so old and intertwined, there is there is really a, a movement around then to 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 come up with some sort of American sport. Um, certainly after the War of 1812, cricket and all things English had sort of fallen a bit out of favor, but that's just what everybody played. They just played cricket. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's really no secret that baseball is based off of rounders, which is an English game. But um, yep. it, it was it was really just these, um, these uh, middle management businessmen who could take off of work, who wanted to goof around, who still kind of had this playful child like quality in them. And that's where the, that's where baseball comes from is that, you know, it's really just men who've refused to stop playing. So they came up with, with a game that they could play. Uh, There weren't really many team sports back then. Uh, Soccer is a lot of running. It's not for everybody and things like, you know, rugby and, you know, you you can't play that every day. It's just games. You can't, can't really, you know, and uh, so, yeah, baseball was what they kind of settled on. It was a long process, and um, it wasn't really until after the Civil War that everybody started playing the same game. Uh, you know, regionally, there were a lot of differences, and even when even after there were printed rules, it doesn't mean that they were taken on. But um, during, during the war, uh, a lot of troops played. Uh, for camaraderie, and that was that was a really big part of uh, camp culture. And when those guys went home, they started a lot of teams, and it just uh, you know it really just exploded after that. A lot of really kind of town ball and and kind of you know I guess what we might call today legion teams. Is that right? Yeah, it, everything starts kind of regionally. Um, I don't think Baltimore's story is very much different. It's it's you know pretty close to what happened in New York. It all starts with one team, and then from there you need another, you you need somebody to play against, and then you have to agree sure. on those rules. And then once you agree on those rules, wouldn't it be great if there was another team to play against? So it's just sort of like and then you know you're always going to have you know in that early era you're always going in every region you're going to have that top tier of you know two or three teams and then you have you know the the masses of clubs that come and go year after year because there was no real stability and it wasn't um just the, the availability of uh, equipment was a really big deal i mean baseball might not exist if it wasn't for daniel lucius adams Pitching the Knickerbockers baseballs for for years and years because there was nobody else that would do it. So you know, Absolutely. once we finally caught on caught on enough to be a fad, you know what happens next. Somebody wants to make money off of it. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of talk about you talk about uh, that early history right before the Civil War, right about 1858 or so. You had the Baltimore Excelsiors. Tell people who might not yeah. be familiar with that about about kind of that era in Baltimore. Well, the the uh, Baltimore was was pretty rough back then, still can be today. Um, but uh, during the 1850s, uh, the city was uh, controlled by uh, 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 political gangs, and there was an offshoot of the Whigs called the uh, Know Nothings, who make Donald Trump look rather sensible shall we say <laughs> and uh these guys and basically these um this 
political party, they were, they were uh, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and they hired street gangs, not only in Baltimore, but in other cities, to Shanghai uh, 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 voters and get you to vote three, four times. And, you know, uh, they would, they would uh, disrupt the polling places. And Baltimore was in the middle of uh, this span of about four or five years of consecutive Election Day riots where these street gangs, the, the rip raps and the plug uglies, uh, they, they, uh, <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they rioted and people died and that, that happened, uh, you know, for, you know, five years straight. And in the middle of that, George Bean, uh, started the Baltimore Excelsiors and he was, uh, a businessman and he took a stand against that. And he was actually got, got beat up a couple of times, in uh, 1858 uh, and 59, uh, trying to defend the polling places. And he's, George Beam is, you know, technically Baltimore's first baseball player, and he didn't play more than two years. And I think it's partially because he got a bad knocking. I think in 59, uh, he'd, um, he'd, he was arrested by the police and arrested and beaten by the police and then thrown in jail. And then they let him out and then he was beaten in public and he was just trying to do the right thing and have fair voting, but there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. It was, it was just, you know, the, the politicians who wanted to be in power stayed in power basically until the civil war when Baltimore was occupied by federal troops. I don't know. Yeah, that, they, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> well, and and they actually ended up um, the Excelsior Baseball Club actually played at Druid Hill Park, and during those Civil War years that you talked about, the Excelsiors actually became the Baltimore pastimes. But they saw a lot of competition kind of rise up around them, didn't they? Yeah, even though um, the in a very short time. Baseball really took off in Baltimore. Um, uh, It's really just, you know, a couple of years behind the big wave in New York. Uh, The Baltimore Excelsiors were named after the Brooklyn Excelsiors. They they have uh, ties. Uh, Joseph Leggett was a friend of George Beams. And um, uh, so right, right, right around when the war happens, there, there was a real big, you know, there was probably about like a dozen, 20, maybe to 20 teams that were like, you know, active, but it's hard to say what really happens once the war starts because all the newspaper coverage turns to the war. Nobody cares about recreational games. This is obviously, you know, before organized sports pages and it was just sort of, you know, when you go looking for this stuff in the old papers, you have to look under the announcements and you have to look under the miscellaneous section because there is no sports page. And with Baltimore, it's very frustrating because it's almost like every other year they get another editor and then you have to find it in some other place. Sometimes it's, you know, there's, you know, it's feast or famine sometimes. So during, during the Civil War, I think, you know, baseball sort of went into recession in Baltimore. It was a very prosperous time for the city. Everything going south came to Baltimore. Uh, soldiers stopped here on their way to uh, on their way to uh, uh, Washington, and so you know, the city really you know profited. And it was it was one of the, it was it was the first time in a very long time that 
the only reason why you weren't working is because you didn't want to. That wasn't always the case. It was, you know, sure. it was a very prosperous time. Uh, Enoch Pratt, who opened up the, the Pratt Library, that's where he, he made his fortune during during the Civil War. Uh, 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 Harry Vonderhorst's father, Harry Vonderhorst eventually owned the Orioles in the 90s, but that's when his father made his fortune and then opened up the Eagle Brewery, which allowed his son to buy the Orioles many years later. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to the 1880s. We t- um, they had the American Association. That was a cl- that did so poorly that the club was renamed the Orioles in 1883. And for many, we that's talked not, earlier. That's, yeah, that's yeah, actually not true. That's actually not true. Those are two. Those are two separate clubs. Actually, the the okay. 1882. The 1882. This is this is one of those things that always perplexed me when I was doing my research. But in in 1882, um, the the Baltimore Baseball Club was a last minute addition to uh, to the American Association. They were really uh, propped up by Pittsburgh, and one of their players, okay. Henry Myers who had played in Baltimore the, the previous couple of years was, was picked by uh, Danny McKnight. He was, you know, he owned Pittsburgh and he was also the American, American association uh, 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 president. So he picked, he picked um, Myers to run the Baltimore team and it didn't do, it did so poorly, but Baltimore was a valuable territory because the national league wasn't here. So they basically just took the club at the end of the year away from Myers without asking, eventually getting him to sign it away. And uh, uh, originally Brooklyn was going to be in Baltimore's place. So they basically gave it back to the owner of the Brooklyn team, Bill Barney, who decided to take over the Baltimore franchise and not mess with New York. So Bill Barney ended up starting the Orioles in 1883 along with Alphonsus Hoke, who was, uh, uh, owned in Baltimore for 15 years at that point. He's a very forgotten, but uh, he's a very important but forgotten uh, figure in our history. Now, if we, talk about, if we talk about the 1880s Orioles, I think we have to kind of talk about the, the Orioles of the Beer and Whiskey League. They were, uh, they were, that league in general was kind of a failure, but those guys especially were pretty scandal ridden, weren't they? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the beer and whiskey league is definitely like, it lives up to its name. Uh, Baltimore definitely, yep. they weren't a great team. They had a couple of brief moments of brilliance. Um, but unfortunately they were brief, uh, but yeah, they, I mean, they, they were uh, there was a lot of uh, umpire baiting, uh, riots at games, a lot of fights, uh, players getting arrested. I mean, you know, they, they, there's uh, there's a couple of stories in my book of um, of guys, you know, having drunken brawls, and you know, it was just year after year, and it wasn't just the Orioles; it was it was the entire league, but the Orioles in particular. They were they just perpetually didn't have much money. Uh, Harry Vonderhorst was a was a minor partner, and he was a silent partner for several years. Um, his father didn't want him getting involved. His father thought he should run the brewery, and and ev- eventually his father was correct. 
But um, at the time, you know, Harry wanted to get into baseball, but he didn't have the money to put into it. And the Orioles weren't a great team, so they didn't draw, and it ended up being this cycle where they just didn't have much of a budget. And when they did get a good guy, they couldn't put anything around him. So, you know, when they finally get Matt Kilroy, who, you know, still has, you know, the major league strikeout record and a uh, uh, wins record for, for lefties, um, they couldn't do anything with them. They, they just kept on putting them out day after day after day. And this young kid got bitter about it really fast. And then, you know, in his, you know, second, second big season, he took a really bad injury to his uh, throwing hand uh, kind of early in the season, and that, that was it. Uh, you know, Matt Kilroy never really pitched the same again, but for sure. about a year or so, he was he was just, you know, more dominant than any other guy. I mean, you know, it's, he's one of the great should have, would have, could have. But, uh, yeah, he unfortunately, he you know, when he finally healed up, he, he just didn't really have it again. And all of these can be found in the book that Ken mentioned earlier, and I can't believe it took me this long to mention, Baltimore Baseball, First Pitch to First Pennant. It is available on BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com. Ken, you actually had something kind of cool happen on April 20th, you got to uh, you got to have a pretty nice um, speaking invitation. What, where were you speaking, and what were you talking about? Um, that was the uh, 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 Saber uh, 19th Century Conference up in uh, Cooperstown, New York, at the Hall. It was really cool. Okay. Um, I, I haven't done a lot of public speaking, but I've been trying to um, the last few years. I'm getting better at it or at least comfortable, which I, you know, I'm okay with that. I'll, I can live with comfortable, but yeah, it was fun. Um, I, I presented, uh, I did uh, for, for my book. I, you know, I traced it all the way up to 1894. And one of my favorite historical players is John McGraw. And much like Baltimore baseball history, uh, John McGraw's history always perplexed me because I'd read all the major books and they contradicted each other. So I was like, well, who's right? Is this one right? Is this part correct? Is that, and it was a lot of it was, you know, his, uh, mostly his, his childhood. And I got really kind of, I don't know, really just somewhat obsessed with figuring out what, what was the real John McGraw, because there's the myth and the legend. And then there's the man. So right. I I started looking into his uh, childhood and I found um, I found an ancestor of his online, uh, Mike McGraw, who'd done a rather extensive family genealogy, and then putting that together with stuff that I'd looked up, it was sort of like, wow, you know, I have a I'm a much better picture. And um, when I went up to to Cooperstown, I stopped in John's hometown of Truxton, New York, and met with Don McCall, the town historian, and he told me a whole bunch more. And now now I'm working on a documentary on John McGraw because it's a really good story. And uh, I'm yeah. hoping to have that done sometime next year. Yeah, and that, if, if according to your website, that is called Little Napoleon, The Life of John McGraw. Is that correct? And it shows 
Fall 2019? Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. That's the working title right now. Probably what we're going to sure. probably that's probably what we'll go with. But yeah, no, hopefully um we're going to um we're going to go back to Truxton uh hopefully before uh the fall and shoot some more stuff. I went up there uh <laughs> we, you know, we were up there in, you know, mid-April and it was snowing. And uh, we went up to John's birthplace. We figured, figured out where that was, and and um, we, you know, we found out where his family was living. And we went there, and there was snow all over the place. And I looked at my friend David, who who was working on the movie with me, and I was like, "Well, I guess it's you know it's historically accurate because he was born on April seventh, and it's the twentieth now. So, you know, it was pretty. Uh, it was it was a, it's you know his his family uh, was was failed farmers." mostly because they had bad choice of land and um they they you know but within a, a you know six months of uh of John being born there was a huge national depression and you know they they the family lost two farms and they were left penniless you know when he was by the time he was one so he really literally did start from nothing and if you go on to Ken's website, BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com, and you click on the top, there's different tabs. There's books and films and store. Um, if you look at the, if you click the films tab, there is a Baltimore baseball before the birds, 1858 to 1881. And something mm-hmm. kind of cool about this is it was the official selection for the 2017 Baseball Hall of Fame Film Festival. So in addition to doing your um, speaking engagement that you had here about eight weeks ago, you are also a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> not real. I, I would like not, to not think that. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, it was a real kick. I did get a real kick out of speaking there. That was pretty neat. Uh, uh, yeah, the film festival was pretty cool. I, unfortunately, I didn't get to go up there to see it. Um, they uh, announced that you were in it just a little too close to the showing date and I should have just, you know, planned on going up there, but I'm always, you know, like, ah, oh, they're not going to take it or whatever. It's, you know, but of course they sure. did, you know, and, um, yeah, I was, I was really happy with that. And, you know, if we're hope, you know, I'll, I'll submit the John McGraw documentary when I get that done and I will go up there for that because you know, I, I, I was just so heartbroken that I couldn't go. That would have been so neat. Now let's, but, let's you know, talk I'm, a little I'm happy about, it's in there. Well, let's talk a little bit about the old frog, the cards and pictures and stuff you do. Because I, I, we're friends mm-hmm. on Facebook, and I see a lot of these, a lot of these cards and stuff that you do. Are these your, are these your drawings of cards? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've always drawn um, since I was a kid. You know, robots, spaceships, stuff like that, and. Um, when I was working on my book, I, I uh, originally I was going to have a lot of his illustrations and stuff, and I found that uh, there weren't any maps that I really needed that showed where the ballparks were. That's kind of where it all started. Is I, I wanted these maps to show the ballparks and draw some sort of just rough renderings of what what I thought that these parks looked like, because there there just weren't any. And from there, I started looking at pictures of some guys that I wanted to have in my book, and I just started started drawing them. And 
uh, yeah, it just sort of like took off from there. I posted some online and got some, you know, really kind of unexpected responses. I mean, I don't think my stuff's like, you know, it's no Greg Kreinler or, or uh, Dick Perez, that's for sure. But I mean, I draw, they paint. <laughs> it's kind of like apples and oranges. Yes. Um, and uh, it's, um, you know, yeah, it's just sort of like picked up. And I, I found that I really, really liked it. I always liked drawing, but it always, I was always good at it if I had a purpose behind it. Like, you know, like if I was, like I used to draw comics, so that was the goal. You finished the comic book. And um, so then, you know, when I got into doing baseball guys, I, I noticed I had about half the Lord Baltimore's done. I was like, well, you know, I could just draw the other five guys and I'd have a set of, set of I'd have the whole team. It just sort of like, you know, blossomed. You know, it just kind of like turned into this arts and crafts project. And, uh, yeah, it just took off. I sold a few copies and um, really underestimated how long it took to make these sets. So right now I'm, uh, uh, I'm getting ready to put out my third big set, and um, I'm going to reboot the whole series because otherwise I'm only going to be able to put out, like, 30 or 40 or 50 of these instead of, you know, give other, you know, try and make it a little bit more collectible. So I'm going to, instead of making big boxes that cost like 150 to $200, I'm going to make packs. So, or, and you'll have the option to buy it by teams now, but I, you know, like it's really just, you know, I wasn't thinking about that when I started out. So, you know, I'm, yeah, this summer, this summer it's going to change into more, more of a collectible thing and you'll be able to pick up a pack on, on eBay for, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks or whatever. Fantastic. And everything that will be hand is hand drawn by Ken on his website, BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com. If you go to the store, he has a copy of his book, Baltimore baseball first pitch to first pennant covers the years 1858 to 1894. We spent a majority of this uh, podcast talking about that. It is 350 pages. It is a, you can order it. It does take about two to three, three weeks for delivery. You can also, he has his uh, PayPal information as well as the um, his where you can find it on eBay. And he also has his one of his documentaries, called Baltimore Baseball Before the Birds, 1858-1881. This is a Blu-ray special edition. It's the 80-minute feature with a 22-minute bonus film called Early Black Baseball in Baltimore. Yeah, and that that, is that's, coming coming, soon. that's coming soon. Yeah, that's coming soon. Working on it, working on okay. it. Absolutely. <laughs> There's only so many Absolutely. hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah, I can't Absolutely. I can't wait. Yeah, and and it should be really exciting and I really really hope that people take the time to um check out check out your website cuz I'll tell you guys, I mean, he's he knows his Baltimore baseball history and it goes it goes way past just Babe Ruth being born in Baltimore and it you know, yeah. like he said he's ta- he's writing a book about John McGraw and and John McGraw actually played with Ned Hamlin and guys like that for those mm-hmm. old Baltimore teams in the late 1880s. So definitely, definitely make sure you are supporting Ken. Again, his films and his website is BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com. It is all one word. His book is Baltimore Baseball, 
first pitch to first pennant, 1858-1894. He also has a Blu-ray that is coming soon. He is also, he's a very, very busy man. He is also working, <laughs> like he mentioned, on the John McGraw book. He also has a book called The Geography of Baltimore Baseball, which is going to be a book of maps, which sounds very, very cool. And the, the sequel... Works, yeah. Yep, and in the works as well. The sequel to the to first pitch to first pennant is called Baltimore Baseball Hit and Run, which I'm assuming is gonna talk about the famous Baltimore Chop, where they hit the ball into the ground and get the really high hop. Sure. Yeah, I I stopped. Uh, well, I stopped the first book where I did um, because there's a there's a really good book out there called Where They Ain't by by uh, uh, Bert Solomon. That I, I highly recommend, and I didn't want to just repeat what he did, even though we're talking about you know the same era. So I kind of have my story broken down a little differently than he does. So when I pick it back up, it's the Orioles are at, are really you know the height of their of their badness in the uh, 1890s. They were they were real bad boys of baseball and uh, you know kings of the diamond. And then it takes it all the way through to, uh, you know, when the Orioles become the Yankees and sort of the downfall there. And then Baltimore's exile into the minor leagues. And uh, I always thought that period was, was uh, very interesting. And I, I, I had to kind of stop where I stopped it so I could end it on a high note. And then the next one's not going to be such a high note. <laughs> There's a lot of highs and lows in Baltimore baseball history. You could make them all highs. You could end end every book on a high or a low, depending on how you wanted to break it down. But I mean, that's going to take a little while. I mean, it took me well over a decade to write the first one, so it's it's a, the sequel is not going to be in your bookshop next week. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the amazingly talented author, Say, Saber Babe Ruth chapter speaker at the Baseball Hall of Fame, as well as <laughs> filmmaker, documentarian, and just all-around great guy, Ken Mars. Ken, I cannot thank you enough for joining me on the program, and let me know when that Blu-ray comes out, and I will buy a copy of it from you. I will do. All right, thanks, Devlin. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye. All right, have a good one. Um, Bye. You too, thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Ken Mars. He jo- he was he is an author and a documentarian man. That guy knows his stuff. He is uh, if you wanna you wanna talk about early baseball in Baltimore, he's the guy to talk to. I like I said, I'm friends with him on Facebook. I've seen a lot of his I've seen a lot of his um, cards and drawings, the old frog pre 1900 cards, and he's amazing. So. If you get a chance, check out his website, BaltimoreBaseballHistory.com. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with our third and final episode of the day. We'll see you all down the road in podcast land. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.